Well, good morning, Village Church. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village. I'm glad to be with you this morning. If you're one of our guests, um, thanks for joining us. Uh, we are beginning a new sermon series this morning out of the books of First and Second Peter that we are calling Hopeful Wisdom for Hard Days. Uh, if you came in this morning and you sat in the second row or in the middle-ish kind of thing, you, you found one of these journals for First and Second Peter and Jude for you to take notes. And that was just a little incentive, okay, because we've been getting crowded. I know it was just raining for a couple days, so that, that frees up space a little bit, but we're stacking chairs in the back. In the last few weeks, there's been some chairs like in the middle that are open, and so I just threw them there as like a little incentive. So I'm just saying, if you sit in the middle toward the front, who knows what you might get on a Sunday morning, all right? So, so, so some of you received the journal. I will tell you that there are a few on the back table. If you're new and you're a guest with us and you want to join us for this series, uh, maybe you saw even some of the stuff online and you thought, you know, I'd like to join you for that series. I'd like to go through First and Second Peter. Uh, we'd like to gift you with one of these. And if you're one of our village partners, uh, we can order more for next week. There will also be a, a great place online called Amazon, and uh, you, can, you can find those there, all right? Um, so why First and Second Peter? Why First and Second Peter and why First and Second Peter right now? Um, for some of you who were Village Partners a couple of weeks ago, you got a little letter from me um, that explained some of this to you. But uh, let me just offer a, a couple reasons here this morning as we get into the book of 1 Peter. First, uh, the hope of your pastors is that First and Second Peter will help to provide some really clear New Testament perspective on God's wisdom that will really complement the more, shall we say, complex kind of perspective we've had as we've spent time walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. We think this will be a good New Testament complement to what we've been considering over so many weeks through the book of Ecclesiastes. The second reason is that um, we see, as pastors, we see our culture and we see our world um, sort of run, running down a certain track and, and certain trajectory, and that trajectory is expected. It's a trajectory that... that um, that leads us to the second coming of Jesus, that leads us to the consummation of all things. And as we go down that road, as we move down that trajectory, we know that there will likely be, well, we know there will definitely be for us, we believe as Christians, harder days in front of us than there are behind us. And so our hope for our village partners, our hope for our church is that we would be prepared well for those days. And the book of 1 Peter and the book of 2 Peter will help us to do that. Actually, a little Bible trivia. If you ever play Bible trivia and anyone asks you, what is the least read book? What is the least studied book in the New Testament in the Western church? The answers will be 1 and 2 Peter. I think part of the reason for that is 1 and 2 Peter deals with the subject of suffering, which we sort of don't like to talk about. But we're going to talk about it because we believe it's the right time. We believe it's the right context. And so we're going to dive in here this morning. And as we do, I want to start with a question. And this is the question, what would you say to other Christians? What would you say to other Christians when you see them going through some of the worst suffering of their lives? Maybe you've already seen this. Maybe you've already known Christians that are going through the worst suffering in their lives, or what do you expect that you would say? Have you thought about what you would say to Christians that would go through some of the worst suffering of their lives? What would you say? I hope you've learned enough along the road of faith where you'd probably just say something like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your suffering. Or maybe you say something like, you know, I, I really can't imagine that. Or maybe you'd say something like, um, you know, I just want to let you know you're not alone and we're here. Or maybe you'd know enough and you've maybe engaged or encountered this situation enough where you'd say something like, 
you know, I'm just not going to say anything. Can I just sit here with you? Can I just be present? Maybe you'd say nothing at all. And as Christians, we know that when we enter into times of suffering, like this is an initial response, an appropriate initial response. And as Christians, also in the back of our mind, though, we know that, that our hearts and our minds are filled with so much truth that we would want to share with a person that shares our faith. There's so much truth that's in our heart and minds that we would want to share with them. It's just not the right time yet. But, but there will be a right time for it. Because as Christians, we have an eternal, not just a temporal perspective. And as Christians trying to encourage other Christians who are going through even the worst suffering they've ever been through, we know that eventually there's truth that will be shared that will help them to have that eternal perspective. And as Christians, we might want that ourselves. When we're walking through suffering, we initially want people just to be quiet and just to be with us and maybe to say few words. But eventually, like, we need and we want and we welcome that kind of encouragement and that perspective. And so I want to let you know, this is essentially what's happening here in 1 Peter, but just on a much larger scale. Like, there's an entire region of the known world at the time that's filled with Christians, potentially a million of them, that, that are going through an extremely difficult time of suffering. They're experiencing the worst suffering of their lives. And, and Peter knows this. And Peter knows that it's the right time to write to them to offer some of this biblical perspective and wisdom, this eternal perspective with them. And perhaps, we don't know, we, there's some things we don't know about when, but, but perhaps Peter has waited long enough, perhaps he's known this for a little while, he's let them endure a little bit of it, and now it's, it's, it's been ratcheted up, and, and Peter now knows it's the right time to write, to offer this biblical wisdom that's in his heart and in mind that now he wants to share with not just an individual, but an entire people. And Peter writes five chapters of this kind of wisdom. Five chapters of hopeful wisdom for hard days for a suffering church. It starts by Peter saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They are the elect exiles of Asia Minor. They live in Western Asia Minor. They are a long way from most of the Christians in the known world at the time around Jerusalem and the areas that have scattered where the Christians have scattered around Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now they are, well, toward the ends of the earth, in a little backwoods kind of place. And they are suffering for the sake of the gospel. They are being blamed for the problems of prevailing culture. Does that sound familiar? This is where they are at. They're being blamed for the problems in prevailing culture, and they are also disconnected from a large portion of the Christians in the known world. I say, well, what kind of suffering are they enduring? Well, we know that they have likely lost relationships because they are now Christians. Like they've lost family relationships and friendship relationships and business relationships because they are now Christians. They've lost their jobs or even their careers because they are now Christians. They've been kicked out of trade guilds and, and certain industries because, well, just simply for the sake of the fact that they are Christians they have lost possessions. Matter of fact, church history tells us that, that people may have even taken their possessions or their houses. They've been robbed. They've been pushed to the margins just because they're Christians. And they've experienced some kind of social and likely physical persecution because they're Christians, just because they're Christians. So the question is, what would you say to Christians who have experienced this kind of suffering? What did Peter say 
to Christians who've experienced this kind of suffering. What's the first thing that you would say to someone that has been experiencing this kind of suffering? What's the first thing Peter says? To those who are elect exiles in the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. <laughs> Listen, Peter, Peter could say nothing. And for a moment, that would probably be appropriate. And then Peter could say anything. And Peter says a lot of things, five chapters worth. But everything Peter initially says, he says to remind them of God's sovereignty in their salvation. And you might be thinking, is this really a good place to start, Pastor Peter? Maybe you should go back to pastor school. And Peter says, yes. Yes, this is a good place to start. Peter says, you may be suffering rejection from your culture, but you have been chosen by God. You may be ostracized from culture, but you have been set apart by God and for God and his purposes. You may be accused by culture, but you are forgiven by God. You may be mocked by culture, but even in the midst of it, God is using it to help you become more like Jesus. You may be shamed by culture, but you've been given grace by God. You may be in conflict with the culture around you, or it may be in conflict with you, but you're now at peace with God. You may have lost relationships, but now you have gained relationship with God through Christ. You may have lost possessions, but now you possess peace with God through Jesus. Peter essentially outlines God's plan of salvation and what that salvation offers them. And he encourages them to see their suffering in light of it. I believe Peter is saying something like this. If Jesus is sovereign over our salvation, you can trust him to be sovereign over your suffering. I think that's the first thing that Peter wants this suffering church to know, that if Jesus is sovereign over your salvation, you can also trust him to be sovereign over your suffering. And I think that is the good news for us this morning. I think that's a good news for us this morning as well. And it's that if Jesus is sovereign over our salvation, that we can trust him to be sovereign over our suffering. And I wanna, I wanna tell you something, Peter says this with some spiritual authority. Like Peter is not sort of tiptoeing around this. Peter is not um, saying, well, maybe you could consider this. Like Peter comes out of the gate and he says, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, which means four things. Peter was chosen by Jesus himself as a disciple and as an apostle. Peter participated in the ministry of Jesus. Peter was present at the crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. There's only a few men on the face of the planet that all four of these things are true about, and Peter was one of them. Peter had a spiritual authority that was not questioned by the early church. Peter comes with a spiritual authority. But Peter's not only speaking with a spiritual authority. Sometimes leaders can just speak with spiritual authority when they haven't had experiential authority. They can speak into something that they don't understand. Peter understands this. Peter has a spiritual authority as an apostle, and he has experiential authority as well. He has been where they are. This might seem out, how do you know that? Well, the Bible tells us that. Peter knows what it's like to leave or to lose things because he's decided to follow Jesus. Peter knows what it's like to leave or lose things. In Matthew 19, 
Jesus says, well, where are you going? Are you going to go away too? Jesus gives a hard teaching. And Peter says in the reply, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Jesus goes through the cost of discipleship. Peter says, we have left everything to follow you. I think sometimes the New, the New Testament or the, the contemporary church sees Peter and Andrew and James and John as these poor fishermen who had nothing better to do. And I just don't think that's the case. I think, I think Peter and Andrew left their father-in-law. I think they left at least a small business. I think they potentially had a fleet of boats. I think Peter and Andrew left significant things to follow Jesus. Peter understands what it means to leave or lose things. He literally says, we've left everything to follow you, so what are we going to have now? Peter also knows what it's like to to have this create some sort of doubt in the plans of Jesus. You remember when, when Jesus begins to talk about in Matthew 16 now. This idea of his suffering, that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer. And Peter says, no, it's never going to be so. And, and you know the line that Peter turn, Jesus turned to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not, you're a hindrance to me for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. Like Peter understands what it's like to when Jesus starts talking about suffering and the implications for his life, which would also lead to implications for their life. <laughs> I don't like this part of the plan. But Peter knows what it's like to follow Jesus anyway. To the part where Jesus actually starts talking about hard teachings. About what it's going to cost to follow him. And Jesus says, will you go away too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? Peter knows what it's like to lose or leave things to follow Jesus. For that to create some sort of sense of doubt in the plans that Jesus has for him. But to realize, you know, I love him. I believe in him. He is who he says he is. And Peter continues to follow Jesus. So Peter, in light of his spiritual authority, he's an apostle. In light of his experiential authority, he understands these things. He reminds this church of four things about God's sovereignty, their salvation, and their suffering. And I think they're things we can learn from as well. We learn the first one in verse 3 where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here I believe we see that God is sovereign over the beginning of our salvation and our suffering. God is sovereign over the beginning of our salvation and our suffering. It says he has caused us to be born again. There is no causality on our part. <laughs> the causality is all on God's part. The idea here is just like we had nothing to do with our physical birth, we have nothing to do with our spiritual birth. It was his sovereign choice. Theologians call this idea regeneration. A theologian that we quote and that we study a little bit in our Apprentice Academy, Wayne Grudem, says it this way, regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. New spiritual life, where there was no life before, where there was something dead, he brings it to life. Where there was no life, God gives life. The Bible also uses imagery of, of hearts that are hard like stone. The stone can do nothing to soften itself except, well, what God would do on externally 
to, to soften it. There's an external force that needs to be applied. God is that external force. And God has a good reason for his sovereign plan of salvation. It says, according to his great mercy. The reason God does it this way is to demonstrate his great mercy, giving us something that we don't deserve and giving us something we could never earn or deserve on our own to bring himself the glory that he alone deserves. You might say, okay, okay, but um, why is this the first thing Peter tells them when he knows they're suffering in such a hard way? He knows they're suffering and he starts talking to them about their salvation. Like, yeah, I know you've lost your homes. I know you've lost your possessions. I know you've lost relationships, but, but God has saved you. You're saved by, by Christ through faith. Why does he start there? And again, I think the reason he does is because he wants them to know if God is sovereign over the beginning of their salvation and our salvation, he's also sovereign over the beginning, we could say the permitting of our suffering. And this is kind of a hard reality to swallow coming out of the gate in 1 Peter. It must have been for them, and I think it must be for some of us. How is God involved in the beginning of our suffering? I think these Christians would have thought back to the story of Job. I think that's a place where we would often think back as well. Gospel Coalition writer Christopher, Gospel, I'm sorry, Desiring God writer Christopher Ash says it this way about the story of Job, and I, I think it's pretty apropos. He says, one of the great, greatest questions in the book of Job is this. Who caused Job's terrible sufferings? There's one clear answer given or assumed by Job, by his three so-called comforters, and by the divinely inspired storyteller. This answer is expressed crisply at the end of the book where the narrator describes how Job's family and friends, quote, comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. In the grand scheme of things, this evil or this suffering comes upon us. Well, in Job's case, through Satan and the work of the enemy, we could say through the brokenness that's in the world, we could say because of our own actions, but ultimately God is sovereign over all of those things. And this is not meant to bring confusion to us though, it's meant to bring comfort. And I believe that's why Peter's starting here. That if we could start at the hardest place and we can say, wow, if God is sovereign over our salvation, that means he has to be sovereign over our suffering. And if that's true, he must have a good reason. And some of you are thinking right now, <laughs> I hope he does. Because if God has a good reason for being sovereign over the beginning of our salvation, and it's his mercy and his glory, I hope he has a good explanation about his sovereignty over the beginning or the permitting of our suffering. Because, well, I've suffered quite a bit, and I see Christians around the world that are suffering in ways that I can't even imagine and Peter does have a reason, but you and I are going to have to wait for it for a bit because Peter moves on. And so we're going to move on. He tells us another thing about what God is sovereign over in our salvation. Look at verses 4 to 5. He says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And here I believe we see that God is sovereign over the keeping of our salvation and our suffering. That God is sovereign over the keeping of our salvation and 
our suffering, God keeps us. The imagery here is that God guards us. This is a, a military camp imagery. Think of, think of uh, New Testament times, think of the Roman Empire, and think of a military camp that's set up with a wall around it to guard it. We're protected inside the walls of the camp. Think of a, think of a first century city with large limestone walls and the walls are, are high and thick and, and the gates are fortified. And that once you're inside, you are protected. And the idea here is that the first guarding is, is guarding from wandering outside the camp. I mean, think about that. It, we're not only guarded from what comes in, but first, we're guarded from wandering outside the camp. And I think in context, in light of the suffering and all the, that that suffering brings, guarded from going sort of spiritually AWOL, so to speak. Something we might see as possible under the pressure of all of this suffering. And... There are four places that people typically go when they experience this kind of suffering. Four things that they can typically do. One, we can blame God and we can wander from him when we blame him. Secondly, we can envy others and we can wander away from them. People that would speak God's truth into our lives. We can enter into self-pity. And we can sort of wander away inwardly. We just kind of become inward. We wander away in our own selves. Or we can wander away by seeking functional saviors. We can go find someone or something else that will try to save us from whatever it is that we're in the midst of. We can blame God. We can envy others. We can give ourselves the self-pity. Or we can seek functional saviors. And despite all of this, despite all of our attempts to sort of wander beyond the walls, God keeps us. God will not let us go. He may, in his sovereignty, let us go to one of those places. He may let us blame him for a while. He may let us seek some self-pity for a while. He may let us run into some functional saviors, but at the end of the day, he will never let us go. He will never let us lose the salvation that we have in him. Listen to me. God doesn't initiate saving anyone he doesn't intend to keep. Let me say that again. God doesn't initiate the saving of anyone who he doesn't intend to keep. But that wall doesn't just protect us from inward forces. It doesn't just protect us from going sort of spiritually AWOL when we are under the pressure of suffering. That wall also protects us not only from the inward forces, but from the outward forces as well. We are guarded from external attacks by, by that wall. We are guarded by external attacks by the salvation that we have in Christ. Attacks against our salvation from outside the camp. I think the best New Testament place that reminds me of this is a, a verse I learned when I was a little boy. This version says it this way, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels or nor rulers nor things, I'm sorry, no life nor death nor angels nor rulers, I'm getting the translations mixed up nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, God doesn't initiate the saving of anyone he doesn't intend to keep. How does he guard us? Well, Peter says, by God's power through faith. If God's power has granted us that faith through regeneration, God's power keeps us in that faith. It's a gift from God. So God keeps us by the faith that he's granted to us. 
You might say, okay, well, well, that's kind of encouraging that God's going to keep me. God's going to guard me. He's not going to let me go spiritually AWOL and wander outside the walls. He's not going to let all these things sort of come against and, and make me just sort of leave my salvation. This is very encouraging. But what does this have to do with my suffering? And I'd say if God is sovereign over the keeping of our salvation, he's also sovereign over the keeping of our suffering. Our suffering will only touch what he allows it to touch. There is a wall that is built. Our, self, our, our suffering, will, they, will, they will only take away what God would allow to be taken away. And I know even in our cultural context, even in our political context, some of you probably feel like, well, they're taking away my money through all these, these taxes, or they're taking away my rights through all these sorts of things. And I am sympathetic to that. I think about similar things sometimes. Whatever it is in life, it can only be taken away. It can only be touched if God allows it to be. Again, the example of Job is the one that would be preeminent in their minds, and I think maybe preeminent in our minds. But in the example of Job in chapter 1, before the last chapter, in the first chapter, we see this, where it says, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is yours in your hand. Only, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. If God is sovereign over the keeping of our salvation, he's also sovereign over the keeping, the guarding, the protecting of our suffering. It's only what he would allow. And even if there are things that do touch our lives, and even if there are sufferings that do take away some of the things that God has so graciously given to us, we sing, we sing songs like, he gives and takes away. We have things that are waiting for us that can never be taken away. Did you catch the first part of that verse? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at a last time. We have an inheritance that is guaranteed. And some of you have this. You have the will. You have a living trust. You have a legal document that says this is guaranteed. This is the way that it will be. I guess on this side of heaven, no inheritance is guaranteed. I guess your folks could spend it, right? Whenever my mom starts talking about the inheritance, I say things like, just spend it, go spend it, you know? In the back of my mind, I'm like, not all of it, not all of it, but just, just go spend it. I mean, our, like our inheritance here is not guaranteed, but you get the point. You have a document that says, yes, it's set there. It's set aside for you. It's legally guaranteed, and this is the idea. We have an inheritance that is guaranteed for us by God. No one can touch it. No one can take it. No one can steal it. No one can rob that from us. No one can take what God has set aside for us. It is set. Like even the language here is it's something that's already done. We have an inheritance that is guaranteed, and it is imperishable. It won't wear out. Whatever your family is going to pass down to you, whatever heirloom now, it is wearing out. These will not. It is not tainted by sin in any way. It is undefiled. It was not gotten in a sinful way. It's not kept in a sinful way. There was nothing done to, to acquire those dollars or that property or those possessions. There was nothing done in any way that had, in any way, shape, or form, that had any sin or malfeasance or anything attached to it. It is pure. It is undefiled. It is a perfect inheritance. And it is unfading. It will never lose its beauty or its glory. It will never fade away. It will always be in its original condition. And it will never change. And it is kept for us 
in the same way that we are kept for him. As sure as we are kept for him, and we are, that inheritance is kept for us. And so even on this side of heaven, they can take whatever they want. They can never take that. And this is the hope that Peter passes along to them. This is part of the living hope that Peter passes along to them. That they have hope for today to live with and for and in Christ today, even in the midst of suffering. But part of the living hope is that, that there is a hope beyond this life into the next when these things are reserved for us. But God is not only sovereign over the beginning of our salvation, over the keeping of our salvation, but there's a third thing, and we find it in verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice. We should rejoice. I mean, would, do we rejoice in that? Do you rejoice in that? That you have an undefiled, unfading inheritance that's kept for you in heaven? Right? In this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Doesn't that seem like odd language? Though for a little while now, if necessary, haven't we been learning from Ecclesiastes that this actually is true? Life is just so quick. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials, like losing your house and your possessions and your friendships and your job and your work and your relationships. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here I think we see God is sovereign over the testing of our salvation through our suffering. God is sovereign over the testing of our salvation through our suffering. Earlier we said something like, some of us were thinking, if God had a very good reason for being sovereign over the beginning of our salvation, his mercy... I hope he has a good explanation about why he is sovereign over the beginning or the permitting of our suffering. This, this is it. Remember when I said we had to wait a while? Well, we don't have to wait that long. Peter's here, and he, he says, this is it. God uses our suffering to test the genuine nature of our faith. Like when the pressure is applied to our faith, it is tested Peter uses this refining idea of gold in the fire, that it gets refined. The higher the heat turns up, the more refining takes place in that process. But there are other images that we also find um, in this teaching of Jesus on, on these ideas, like the parable of the, the soils. I know some of you have been watching The Chosen. You've maybe seen that episode. Maybe some of you have just been reading your Bible. You can find it there too. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus gives the parable of the soils, and after he's done, the disciples are like, well, what does that mean? And Jesus explains it to them. And Jesus says, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. God is sovereign over our, the testing of our faith through our suffering. I'm not sure this is the only reason, but I'm sure this is one of the reasons that God uses that suffering to test our faith. And the reason I'm sure is because Peter says it. Well, you might say, well, how can I know then if my faith is going to be proven or tested? If God wants to prove or test my faith through my suffering, 
If that's what God has in mind for the suffering that he allows in the lives of Christians, then how do I know if I'm proved? How do I know if it's been refined? How do I know if the heat's been turned up hot enough to refine my faith and to prove that it's genuine, as Peter says? Well, I think we find out in verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How do you know if your faith has been tested and proven and that you have genuine faith? I think Peter says, you love him. And you know that you love him if you know. I was worshiping yesterday morning by myself downstairs, and in the song, it's, uh, it says, filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at the mention of your name. And I paused and said, Jesus, that is true. When I hear the name of Jesus, my heart leaps. Does yours? If you love him, you love him, and you know that you do. How will you know? You love him. How will you know? You believe in him. That even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of hard things, you say like Peter, where else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we've come to know that you are the, the, the Christ, the Holy One of God. You believe in him. You trust him even in the midst of the trial. And you rejoice. You rejoice. You have joy even in the midst of trials because you love him, because you believe in him, because you know he is who he is. You can even rejoice at what's being accomplished in the midst of suffering, as difficult as it may be the tested genuineness of your faith. The same verse also brings us to the fourth and last point, and I believe it's something like this, that God is sovereign over the completing of our salvation and our suffering. You see what's happening here? You see what Peter's doing? That God has saved us, God is saving us, and God will save us. God is sovereign over the beginning of our salvation, the keeping of our salvation, and the completing of our salvation. And all along the way, we are going to have trial, and we are going to have suffering, sometimes just because we're Christians, just for the sake of being Christians. God's going to use that to test our faith, to prove that it's genuine. But he is sovereign over the beginning, the middle, and the end. He's already told us in verse 5, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at a last time. He's already told us in verse 7, may to be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now he tells us in verse 9, obtain the outcome of your faith, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think Peter is simply saying, if God can be faithful to initiate it, and if God can be faithful to keep it, then God can be faithful to complete it. If he can be trusted to initiate and start your salvation, and he can be trusted to keep it, he can be trusted to complete it. And this is true about our suffering as well. You might say, again, <laughs> this is encouraging me. What does it have to do with suffering? And I believe much of the same. If God is sovereign over the completing of our salvation— he is also sovereign over the completing of our suffering. There will be a day when there is no more suffering. There will be a day when there's no more need for suffering. Because faith will have been tested and it will be found genuine and we will be in his presence and it will all be complete. 
And we know the end of the story in Revelation 21 where it says, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's no need for that anymore. God is big enough that he can actually redeem suffering, even the worst suffering in the lives of Christians, for their good. That's how big God is. That's how sovereign God is. But there will be a day when that's just not necessary anymore. The former things have passed away. I don't know if you see this as a big deal, but Peter wants us to see it as a big deal. This is a really big deal. That God is so sovereign. That he's not only sovereign over our salvation, but he's sovereign over our suffering. Peter's saying, this is a huge deal. And apparently one the Western church doesn't like to think about. Apparently one that we don't like to read about. We don't like to study about too often. And Peter's saying, why not? This is a huge deal. How do I know that? Well, he ends this section by saying, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquired in what person or time of the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when, the, when he preached the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. Let me just step aside and say, when you read your Bible and when you read prophetic books, what's often happening is, is the prophets are seeing like, 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 like a mountainscape. Like imagine if you are on top of Mammoth Mountain. Does anyone want to be on top of Mammoth Mountain right now? I would. That would be amazing right now. They had so much snow. But when you stand on the top of the highest chairlift, and if you've been there, you know, that as you look out, you can see this vast wilderness of mountains. And you'll see peaks and peaks and peaks. And some of them look really far away, but they're actually pretty close. And some of them look close, but they're actually really far away. And what the prophets were doing is they were writing about things that were true of their own time, but they're also true of the coming of Jesus. They're also true of the consummation, the second coming of Jesus. And as they were writing them, they were trying to see what is going on. When is this going to happen? Where is the peak when this, this occurs? And, and for them, they're seeking diligently into it. They did not see it all, but you do. And I do by the grace of God. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that they have now seen and announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The things that we're talking about this morning are things that all of the prophets looked at all of those mountain peaks and they wanted to see it and they didn't see it clearly, but we do. <laughs> the prophets long to know about it. They long to know more about it. We're talking this morning about things that Peter's saying that angels want to know more about. <laughs> and the things we're talking about this morning are things that Jesus knows about. It says when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Village Church, please hear me clearly this morning. We don't just have a Savior who is sovereign over our suffering. We have a Savior who is sovereign over his suffering. Let me just say that again so it sinks in. We don't just have a Savior who is sovereign over our suffering. We have a Savior who is sovereign over his suffering. We don't just have a Savior that asks us to endure suffering. We have a Savior who endured the worst suffering himself. 
to make a way for our salvation. Something much more meaningful and weighty than the suffering that we would feel. Though I know in the moment you feel it, and I do, and we do. Peter eventually is going to tell us this in chapter 3, and I'm assuming we'll come back to it many times. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If you're not yet a Christian, one of the reasons we as Christians can talk about this and one of the reasons that we at the Village Church will talk about this, I don't, I'm not really concerned about the rest of the Western Church. I'm concerned about this church. I love this church. And the reason that we can talk about this as a church is that by God's grace, we believe this. And we know that we have a Savior in Christ who is not asking us to do things he's unwilling or unable to do himself. We believe that Jesus went first. We believe that Jesus suffered the most. And Jesus accomplished the most through his suffering. As Christians, we believe that Jesus lived a life we could never live, a life that's free from sin, and yet he died a death that we should have died on the cross and in our place and for our sins. Jesus suffered on our behalf. That's what we believe as Christians. And Jesus rose to give us a life we can never have otherwise. That's why Peter says that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus rose to prove that all of this is true, that we can place our faith and our hope and our trust in him to forgive us for our sins and to free us to live the life that he called us to live, even if that means suffering, because the suffering will prove the genuineness of our salvation, that we really know him, and that all the promises that we have in him for us are true. And so we would invite you to Jesus this morning. This is the good news for us. If Jesus is sovereign over our salvation, we can believe that he's also sovereign over our suffering. And I hope that's good news for you this morning. This morning we're going to respond to this in a few ways. Um, we always want to respond to the things we hear from God's word. And we're going to respond this morning by singing. We sing to Jesus because we love him, because he deserves it, because we believe in him because we have joy even in the midst of our suffering. So, so in our singing this morning, we will prove that we actually have genuine faith. We're singing to Jesus because we love him. We're singing to Jesus because we believe in him. And we're singing to Jesus because we rejoice in him. Even if we are in suffering, or even if we know, we may endure suffering one day for the sake of following Jesus. We're going to sing to Jesus. We're going to give our tithes and offerings. Um, we do that um, here in the back. If you do that physically, um, most of you do that online. And some of you just in the moment as we begin to sing, uh, you do that on your app. Many of you just do that um, online and have it recurring. That Pray over that, please. That's an act of response of worship, our giving. We also take communion. And this morning we'll do that in the back. When you're ready, if you're a Christian, you can go back and take the elements and remember Jesus, his body given for you and his blood shed for you. And as a church, we also respond by praying. We, we pray for each other, and you might find yourself in the back praying over one another for some of these things. But this morning, before you pray for one another, um, I'd like to pray for you what we might call a pastoral prayer, which is just a prayer um, from a pastor over the, over the church. And, um, and so I want to pray for you and pray for us this morning. It's a written Puritan prayer uh, from the Valley Vision. You might be familiar with it. This one's called The Voyage. And the idea is that we know we're not yet um, where we're going to be. 
that we're on this voyage or journey along the way. That along the way, we believe that Jesus initiated something with us, that Jesus is keeping us, and Jesus will complete what he intends for us. And we're sort of in the middle here right now. And this prayer gives us hope and belief for the journey, for the voyage. So would you bow your heads and your hearts with me? Would you allow me just to pray over you this morning? Oh, Lord of the oceans, my little bark sails on a restless sea. Grant that Jesus may sit at the helm and steer me safely. Suffer no adverse currents to divert my heavenward course. Let not my faith be wrecked amid storms and shoals. Bring me to harbor with flying pennants, hole unbreached, cargo unspoiled. I ask great things. I expect great things. Shall receive great things. I venture on the holy and fully my wind, sunshine, acre, and defense. The voyage is long, Lord. The waves high, the storms relentless. But my helm is held steady. Your word secures safe passage. Your grace wafts me onward. My haven is guaranteed to me. This day will bring me nearer home. Grant me holy consistency in every transaction. My peace flowing as a running tide. My righteousness as every chasing wave. Help me to live circumspectly with skill to convert every care into prayer. Hallow my path with gentleness and love. Smooth every disparity of temper. Let me not forget how easy it is to occasion grief. May I strive to bind up every wound and pour oil on all troubled waters. May the world this day be happier and better because I live. Let my mast before me be the Savior's cross and every oncoming wave the fountain in his tide. Help me. Protect me in the moving sea until I reach the shore of unceasing praise.